If you would, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. One of the things we believe about preaching God's Word is that it is good to choose a book of the Bible and to preach from the beginning to the end, or at least as far as you can get before the semester ends. And one of the things, one of the reasons why we do that is because we let God set the agenda for what we need to hear. And one of the things that happens in that is you never know what's going to happen in the next coming weeks and months. But we trust that God knows what we need to hear in whatever season it is. So whether it's for you personally or whether it's for us collectively or whether it's just for us even thinking about the things that happened in Nashville, this text is the most relevant thing for you right now, for me right now. As we continue the sermon series, let me remind us that as the theme says up here, is that Romans is teaching us to rely on Christ's righteousness. So I'll read Romans 5, 12, 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following uh, many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father of glory, as we now give attention to your word, we're asking that you would open up our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. Open our ears to hear of the good news of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us to comprehend with, with all the Christians throughout all the ages what is the infinite love for us in Christ. Fill us, Holy Spirit, with all the fullness of God. 
We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In the novel, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, at the beginning of the novel, they speak of a man who was giving lectures on magic but was not a magician. He called himself a magician, but he couldn't do any magic. Talking about his lectures, they said this, He hardly ever spoke of magic, and when he did, it sounded like it was a history lesson, and no one could bear to listen to him. I think that can often be said of the way we talk about truths from God's Word. That at times we can speak of our theology, but it just sounds like a boring history lesson that really has no application to people today. And it does, it does beg the question of this. Does the Bible have anything to say to us today? Does it grip our lives? Are we gripped by God's Word? You see, what God's Word is actually telling us here is this, is that every single one of us, this room and throughout the world, we are all gripped by the truth of God. And particularly this, that we are all gripped, we are all living in one of two stories. The first story is the covenant of works. And the second story is the covenant of grace. And those stories, those covenants are gripping every single person in here, whether you realize it or not. And the question that we need to face tonight is this. The story that we tell ourselves every single day of what our life is and where we're going to go in life, what we're telling ourselves every day, does it match the reality of where we are? Some of you might be telling yourselves a certain story but it doesn't fit the reality because you're in rebellion to Jesus Christ. Or some of you are telling yourselves a story and you don't realize all the good news you have in Jesus Christ. What story are you telling yourselves? You see, this text in Scripture is showing us that the story you live in is the story you live out. The story or the covenant that you live in is the story or the covenant that you will live out. That's what this text is telling us. But before, if we're going to understand what does this mean, we actually do need to have a little bit of a crash course, it, you would oblige me for a second, in covenant theology. Uh, what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement between two parties. And the two parties, one would be, in ancient days, would be known as the suzerain. That would be the person who had more authority of the two parties. The other one would be what's called the vassal, who would have the lesser authority of the two parties. So if me and Evan were to enter a covenant, let's all be honest, Evan would be the suzerain, I would be the vassal. He would have more authority, I would have less. It was an agreement between two parties. But it's more than just an agreement. Here's what it well, one person says, a covenant is a legal agreement between two parties that is ratified by certain rituals that emphasize the binding nature of the agreement. Let me give you an example that you might be very familiar with. You're signing a lease for a house. There's the owner, who would be the suzerain, and then there's the tenants, just you and me. We're just the vassals. 
And in, in this agreement, there's a list to have this house and to live in this house. There's a list of rules or laws. There's also a list of promises that the owner will fulfill if you do your part. Then you have the signed agreement that's talking about if there's certain damage or you have to pay this certain rent in order to keep living there. And you sign that agreement. And here's the thing. That agreement is saying this, is that let's go back to me and Evan. Let's say I'm renting from Evan. Evan's my landlord. We sign this deal. If I don't pay rent, Evan has the right to kick me out. Or if I damage the house in a certain way, Evan has the right because I broke the agreement. I broke the covenant. He has the right to kick me out. In other words, this. There are either blessings or there are curses. That's what a covenant is. A covenant is when promises have been made, oaths or vows have been taken to make sure the promises are sure. Laws of the agreement must be kept. And there will be blessings or curses based on the fulfillment of the law. One of my friends loves to summarize a covenant by using the acronym POP. There are promises, there are obligations, and if the obligations are broken, then there is a punishment. Now, sometimes to ratify or to confirm a covenant, you would do certain things. Remember in the covenant God made with Noah in Genesis 6 through 9, there was a sign that God gave Noah, and it is the what? The rainbow. There was also... Something that God did with Abraham, it was a sign of of, uh, the covenant that God would give Abram a land and a great people and he would save people by grace through faith. That sign was circumcision. There was also the covenant with Moses. I don't know if I just like accidentally turned myself off. Um, There was also the covenant with Moses and the sign there was the weekly Sabbath. Here's a one author. A guy named Herman Vitzius, love that name. He says this, A covenant of God with man is an agreement between God and man about the way of obtaining perfect happiness. That's key. It's a covenant between God and man about how we can enter into perfect happiness or eternal life. This includes... The possibility of eternal destruction were one of the parties to become guilty. Everyone give it up for Luke Merle. Oh, we're hot. There we go. Mom, there we go. Thanks, dude. I have no clue what just happened. Um, Now, that's what a covenant is. But here's something that's interesting in a covenant. This is where Romans 5 will really make sense. Is that there's what's called covenant representatives. There's a representative. The vassal is representing a group of people. Covenants, as one person says, covenants operate on the basis of a representative principle. This means that the actions of the covenant representative, it will impact the people they represent. Think about this. Let's go back to my illustration with me and Evan. Me and Evan signed the agreement. He's the suzerain. I'm the vassal, right? But I'm bringing my family to live in the house with me. And if I, maybe the rest of my family doesn't, but if I break the agreement with Evan, 
it will affect my whole family, right? See, we can actually see this with peace treaties with different nations where we've actually seen it in that something that leads to various wars where there would be an assassin who would take out uh, in a, a, another country's high up official. And because of that action, it wasn't as if they just dealt with that individual person. They dealt with the country. We don't really like this idea because we live in a very individualistic age. But here's what I want us to interact with is that for one, all of us came from Adam and Eve. As God entered into covenant with him, he affects us. We had no choice but to come from the very first two human beings. We were born into this covenant. Only Jesus uh, had a different conception, but even he was born into the covenant of works so that he might save us from fulfilling it. You see, it's also important, too, is that it wasn't left up to Adam to either take it or leave it. You see, for him to reject God entering into covenant with him would be sin either way. And matter of fact, I think one of us, I mean, one of us, it sounds like I'm calling someone out. Um, I think all of us need to think about this. Have we ever existed for a single moment without God's existence? So who are we to say no to him? God also, he sovereignly commanded Adam to accept it. So it would have been disobedient and it would have been sinful. But it also, God stooping down to enter into covenant with Adam is amazing that God would say, I can give you an even greater happiness. In a lot of ways, he did not have to do that. For Adam to desire the covenant is to desire God's goodness and holiness and sovereignty. You see, here's one of the things we need to realize is that if we reject the principle of, well, I'm not going to let Adam represent me. I'm going to do things myself. Then by principle, you're also rejecting Jesus representing you. Because if Adam sinned, cannot be imputed to you, then Jesus' righteousness cannot be imputed to you. You see the ramifications there, right? We see this in verse 14. Here's what's interesting is that it says that yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. It describes Adam. It says this, Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. What is a type a type is kind of like this. Uh, I was driving to the church yesterday after dropping Knox off from school and rolling around on uh, the center console in our in my dad van uh, is one of his little toy trucks. That toy truck is a type of an actual truck. It's not the real thing, but there's a lot of similarities. It's a type. It's a model of the real thing. That example falls apart in many ways, but this is what a type is according to Scripture. It is an example that foreshadows the reality to come. So in other words, there's a lot of similarities between Adam and the second Adam to come. But the second Adam to come will be even better. 
You see, what this means is actually really incredible because Jesus, if, if Adam could plunge humanity into such depths of sin and depravity and death and condemnation, then what could Jesus do? I'm already getting ready to say amen. You see what I'm saying there? What could Jesus do? Because it's not as if Jesus is merely a man. He is, and he must be a man if he is to save me. But he is also God. If you actually look in your handout, open it up. I gave you some charts and some graphs to help make some of this make sense. Some of those, the really good-looking pictures in there is from a guy named John T. Rhodes in his book, Covenants Made Simple. But let me show you this. There are two covenants, as I've mentioned. There are two stories. There's the covenant of works and there's the covenant of grace. They're similar in the fact that there are two parties, God and the covenant representative. But you see there, there's also, it's the covenant representative and everyone who is united to that person. So that means this. You already need to be asking yourself this. Am I united to the first Adam or to the second Adam? The same promise is held in both. That fulfillment of the covenant, you will receive eternal life and perfect happiness. You also have the same goal in both of those. The goal is to be in the glory of God. But there's differences. In the covenant of works, we must earn perfect happiness by perfect obedience. We are the ones who have to deal with God on our own. There is no mediator between God and man in the covenant of works. We, the condition of entering perfect happiness and eternal life, the condition is perfect, perpetual, personal obedience. And as James says, if you, if you fail in sin in only one point of the law, you failed in sin in all of it. But the covenant of grace is different. The covenant of grace shows us that Jesus earned perfect happiness for us by his perfect obedience, atonement, and resurrection. That Jesus is the mediator between God and man because he is both God and man. And that the condition of entering into this covenant to receive eternal life, to receive the glory of God, it's not by working for it. It's by trusting Jesus alone. Brothers and sisters, which story are you in? Which covenant is binding you in this moment? Is it the covenant of works or is it the covenant of grace? Because those stories, they grip and determine our reality. Either death is working out in your life or God is working life in your life, even in the presence of death. You see, the story that you live in is the story that you live out. Now, let's look at the two different covenants. First, let's look at what it means if you are in the covenant of works. In the classic movie, Remember the Titans, Denzel Washington's character approaches two players and they're getting ready to get on the bus to go to fall training camp. And he comes up to them and he says, once you get on that bus, you ain't got no mama no more. 
You got your brothers on the team. You got your daddy. Now, you know who your daddy is, don't you? Gary, if you want to play football on this team, you answer me when I ask you, who is your daddy? Who's your daddy, Gary? Who's your daddy? It's actually a really good example. Because really the question for us is, who's your daddy? Is it the first Adam or the second Adam? You see, if you are in the covenant of works, you belong to the first Adam. And if you belong to the first Adam, if you're in the covenant of works, and that means that you don't trust Jesus Christ. It means that your story is one of sin. What is sin? Sin is any lack of perfect conformity to God's law. And you see sin in two different ways. There is either omission or commission. Think about it this way. The word omission means that you omit something. You don't do what you should do. That's one way to break God's law. That means this. You can still sin if you say, well, at least I'm not doing what all these other people are doing. Because you're not positively fulfilling God's law. But then there's commission, which means to commit. That means you do what you should not do. So perfect obedience is not just not sinning, but it's also positive fulfillment of God's law. But in this story, we omit and we commit. Verse 12 says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin came into the world at the fall in Genesis 3. When it says it came into the world, it's particularly talking about there Jews and Gentiles. There's no people group that is exempt there. Because all people came from Adam and Eve. There was a real historical Adam and Eve. And all humanity came from them. It's the picture of root and fruit. If the root is bad, the fruit will be bad. But if the root is good, the fruit will be good. But we are all born from Adam and Eve. Thousands of years ago, born from them, we enter into this life of sin. You see, and this is actually where we've developed this doctrine, this biblical doctrine called total depravity. Total depravity means that the totality of our being, nothing of our existence is left out of being depraved. One confession called the Canons of Dort says this, total depravity means that we have blindness, terrible darkness, futility and distortion of judgment in man's mind. There's perversity, defiance against God. There's hardness of heart and will. And listen to this, it's very important in our day. Even our emotions are impure. Now, this is not utter depravity. This is not saying, if I can pick on Evan again, that Evan is as bad as anyone can be. No, but it is total that every part of his being is affected by sin. And this isn't merely just an imitation of what Adam did and we're merely just imitating him. No, rather, we have been born with original sin. It means that our, our will, our desires are not merely just hindered where we need a little bit of help. It means they're dead. It means that faith is not already residing in us where we just need to activate it. It means that someone from the outside needs to give us faith. That's what it means. 
David says in Psalm 51 that we were conceived in sin. The moment you came into existence in the womb, conceived in sin. The Ephesians 2 says we were unable to do any good deeds toward God because we were dead towards Him. We were slaves to sin. We were not able nor were we willing to come to God. That's why actually in Romans 3 it says no one seeks for God because no one is willing to. To seek for God. We're actually in this covenant, in this story, we're doubly guilty. We're guilty for our own sinful nature, our own sinful desires, original sin, but we're also guilty for actual sin. So in other words, you can't say this. You can't say, well, it's not a sin if I don't act out on it. Because Jesus himself will say in the Sermon on the Mount, if you lust in your heart, it's sinful. You see, what Scripture is saying about sin is that it's so bad of a situation that God must come to us or else we won't be saved. We do not come to God. He comes to us. It is all of God's grace. Sin abounds. We see that in verse 20. The law came in to increase the trespass where sin, it increased. We even see uh, even earlier about how sin had abounded in this text. I think this is very important to speak into today. We live in an age where we celebrate and we see virtue in being a victim. Now, to be very sure, don't don't misquote me here. To be very sure, we are sufferers. We are victims in a cursed world, but we are not only sufferers. We are not only victims. The world today is saying that it's just heroizing the victim. But the reality is that as we see ourselves as only victims, we forget the sin. And just because you are a sufferer, it does not excuse the sin. Matter of fact, the tragedy to us today is that the more we minimize our sin, we minimize grace. Now, we're not only sinners. That's another extreme people can take. But we must remember we are both sinners and sufferers. We become very ego-driven. We become very self-obsessed. We become very self-worshipping. And sin just abounds more and more in our life. It's like Knox when he first discovered his shadow and he tried to run away from it. And we were laughing saying, buddy, you can't do that. Sin abounds in your life. And even when you try to put it out of your memory, it doesn't go away. Verse 21 says that sin reigned in death. It's talking about the word reign. That's a picture of a king with a kingdom. And this, is, this means that if sin is in our life, if we're in this covenant, then we're living in this kingdom that we cannot escape unless a greater king comes. It says that sin, verse 13, sin is not counted where there is no law. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. What it's saying there is that from the very beginning when God made the covenant with Adam, there was a law. It was more manifest in the Ten Commandments, but there was a law there. This leads, sin leads to condemnation. Verse 18, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Condemnation means that you have been charged with a guilty verdict. It's like what Nathan, the prophet, says to David after David slept with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. 
He goes to David and he says, you are the man. We need to remember this in today's age. Is that you are still guilty even when you don't feel guilty. Did you hear that? We often only think sin is whenever we feel guilty or feel shame. But that means that we determine what sin is. God determines what sin is. That means we can't say it's not that bad. One look at pornography or this certain lifestyle or a time of drunkenness or a time of gluttony or anger or pride or gossip. It's not that bad. We can't say that. Because merely one bite of a fruit in the very beginning cursed all of humanity. And that's how we have seen such tragedies today. We also can't say it's not that bad because would we dare to look at Jesus Christ who took the wrath of God on the cross and say, well, this one sin was not that bad. So what you did shouldn't have been that serious. This condemnation leads to judgment, it says there in verse 18. This condemnation, it leads to judgment and this sin, condemnation and judgment leads to death. Death is life apart from God that just shrivels us up in all areas of life. We die towards God. We die towards others in the world and even self. Immediately being born in sin, we are dead spiritually. And then slowly but surely, death affects everything else in our life. Our relationship with others, our relationship with the world, our physical bodies, us mentally, emotionally. Death is that gangrene disease that spreads rampantly. It's like these crepe myrtles that we had back in Mississippi at our old home. And within a matter of days, if one tree had this little disease, it would just sweep through the whole neighborhood. That's your story if you're in the covenant of works. The problem is this, is that if you don't trust Jesus, the covenant of works Even though you can't fulfill God's law on your own, it still abides on you. You see, that's hard news, but it's reality. And matter of fact, if we don't get the covenant of works right, we won't get the covenant of grace right. Brothers and sisters, you are living in one of two covenants. Either the covenant of works or the covenant of grace. And unless we are saved from the covenant of works, then we will forever be there. But what is the covenant of grace? What is that other story that we can live in? I think it's actually very fascinating. We need to think about today is that. I think one of the real reasons why we see culture the way it is, is because we have failed to proclaim the reality of what Jesus has done. In my opinion, I think we've giving people too many strategies, too many topical talks, too many trendy disciplines and pop psychology. We just give people law and say, do this, rather than saying, here's what's been done. We tell people, look within, but the problem is that when you look within, you only see the law. And what people need desperately today is they need real, actual, 
bona fide promises that you can be in a right relationship with Jesus Christ all by grace. Amen? And coming into the covenant of grace, it's a different story for you. Even though you were so affected by the covenant of works, but when you are united to Jesus Christ by faith, it's a different story. And here's your story. It's one of obedience. You see that in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. We see verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. You see, just as Adam, by his disobedience, plunged us into sin and death and condemnation, Jesus's obedience, his perfect, perpetual, personal obedience is so amazing that it rescues us from the kingdom of death. Because Jesus is God and man Jesus' obedience is not just for himself. Because he is the covenant representative. It's not just for himself. It's given to all those who trust in Jesus. Amen? I want you to think about this. Were you to somehow fulfill the law's demands, it would have a finite worth. But you get more in Jesus Christ than anything else you could ever imagine. Amen? See, this is actually what this means. Jesus is the one who fulfills the covenant of works. We can actually say this. We are saved by works, just not our works. We are saved by works, by the works of Jesus rather than us. And we trust in Jesus' works that that alone is totally sufficient for all my past, all my present all my future is sufficient to cover my original sin, my total depravity and my actual sins. Jesus, his works, his obedience is enough. Amen. And when you trust Jesus, you are justified. I remember when I was in, I think, fourth grade, some of you heard the story. I was in fourth grade and it was dress up as your hero day. And I had made this really awful looking jersey. I was in fourth grade. Give me a break. Uh, made this really awful jersey for a guy named Brett Eddins who played football at Auburn at the time and he won't go into our high school. My parents had taken a picture of it and sent it to Brett's parents. This is so cool. Brett gave permission to his parents to bring me. Now, Brett was a defensive lineman and I was in fourth grade. So it was huge. But they brought me his game-worn Auburn football jersey that basically when I wore it, it wasn't like it was a short dress. It was like down to my ankles. And I was able to wear it that day. How does that make sense of justification? Was that jersey, was it mine originally? No. It was someone else's, but it was given to me. And I wore it. I was not an Auburn football player. I was a fourth grader. But someone else had done that and was given it to me. You see, when you are justified, God looks at you and treats you as if you obeyed just like Jesus. Amen? When the Father declares at Jesus' baptism, when He says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, 
There is a sense where it's not only as if God, yes, he is calling his particular son. This is a, this is a very unique person and redeemer. But when I come in union with Jesus Christ, God the Father will also tell me, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Amen? Justified. It's a free gift, it says in verse 16. And the free gift is it's not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. I had a buddy one time who was counseling me. It's the same guy who I say, whenever, whenever I say one of my buddies is one of two guys, so it's one of those guys. I was really struggling with lingering shame and ungodly shame and sinful fear over various things. And I was speaking to my buddy and he started counseling me. And he actually, as weird as it sounds, he brought up covenant theology. Now I'd be thinking, I don't need covenant theology right now. But the way he was showing me how this truth applies that he said this, brother, you're living as if you're still in the covenant of works and not in the covenant of grace. You are living as if you still have to earn something when the free gift of Jesus has been given to you. That changed my life. It was the story that was gripping me. The covenant of grace was, but I had to learn more and more to remember me and God were good. He is satisfied with his son being enough for me. That's what it means to have the story of the covenant of grace gripping you. Righteousness reigns in your life. You are free from punishment. You are coming into the presence of peace with God. We have life in this story, it says in verse 17. Life in Jesus Christ. Now this means this. It doesn't just mean me and God have a good standing, so now I can live however I want. No, it means this. Because of my union with Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is the God of life. Now I have a new life and a new nature to learn more and more, slowly but surely, to learn to live like him. Amen? That's what we call sanctification. It is not perfect. God does not just zap sin out of your life. But he does work in you by his grace more and more to be conformed to the image of of Christ. It's life in us. That means that if we are a believer, if we're united to Jesus, we can't define ourselves by our sin. We might describe our sin, that it is a reality in our life. It is present. But sin is not the biggest power in my life. Jesus is. That's why identity language really matters. Life is for all those who get Jesus and it leads ultimately to eternal life. You see that there in verse 21. Righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, this covenant of grace, it's free. And it's putting a, a major emphasis here. It's actually really saying this, Paul's saying this, that you can't embrace this covenant of grace if you're still trying to hold on to your good deeds. It's like the story of actually how uh, poachers would try to catch monkeys 
in a jungle and they would cut a hole in the tree and put a banana in this very small hole. And whenever a monkey would reach into that hole to grab the banana, if it was still holding the banana, it, it couldn't pull its hand out. And if it didn't pull its hand out and leave, then the hunters would come and kill the monkey. And the monkey would often be so stubborn it wanted that banana, but it would ultimately end up dead because it wouldn't let go. My friends, if you're still trying to hold on to your resume, to your good works, then you're still in the covenant works. It's like what the hymn says. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Amen? Because it's Jesus' works that save us, not our own. It's all by grace. All of our sins are forgiven in Him. He gives us this righteousness. And because we are in this covenant of grace, it transforms the way our lives will work out. You know what was a really amazing sensation when the Marvel movies were coming out? Is the whole thing when they started to have the post credit scene and then like the post credit scene, post credit scene scene or whatever it would be. I think that what was amazing there is that you knew that when the movie ended, it wasn't really over. What's amazing is that if you are in Jesus Christ, it means that your sin and your suffering is not the only story. But that there's more to come. That in Jesus Christ, all your suffering, the pain will be reversed. All your sin, that curse will be reversed. That in Jesus Christ, He is bringing redemptive reversal into the worst moments in your life. And you better believe that's a precious truth to people in Nashville right now. You see, the grace of God reigns for those who are united to Jesus Christ. Amen? You might think your sin is a lot, but look at verse 20. It says sin increases, but grace abounds all the more. You cannot out God's grace. You cannot run away from him and exhaust God and he'll let you go. My friends, once you are united to Jesus Christ, you are always united to Jesus Christ. And that's what needs to determine what you tell yourself. You see, the story you live in is the story you live out. On my desk, I have one of the most precious things, and it's a compass. Some of you have seen it. It's a compass that my dad gave to me. And when you open up the compass, it says, keep Jesus as your true north. And you know a compass, how it works, it, it helps you know where north is. Well, my dad, growing up in Mobile, Alabama, he grew up on the Gulf of Mexico. He grew up deep sea fishing. And whenever you go deep sea fishing, especially in the Gulf, if you want to get home, you go north. I've been deep sea fishing with my dad many, many times. And many times you go out so far where you can't tell what's right, left, north, south, east, west. And even then, whenever... Whenever there's a storm over top and you're wondering where in the world are we? How do we get back home? Do you know the thing that keeps us straight is the compass on the boat? My friends, if you want to know how to make it home, how to make it into perfect happiness, to be amidst the glory of the Lord, you need home 
and you need a compass. You need Jesus Christ. And He is bidding you right now. He is saying, just believe. I'm not asking you to to do anything else. I'm telling you, just believe and I got you. That's an amazing covenant to live in, isn't it? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask at this time you would please help us to soak in the riches of your word. Father, write these things upon our hearts because we're just ambushed all the time with what we should think about our lives. But it's really this covenant that grips us. So, Father, grant us the faith to trust which story we are in. Grant us the faith to even believe in Jesus for the first time. No, Lord, we do ask that we would grow in this understanding. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.